We are four days past the spring equinox, and there are 87 days until the summer solstice. But who's counting? Me, Sean Tubbs, your host for this March 25th, 2021 edition of Charlottesville Community Engagement, a frequently published look at items coming up and items that have already moved on down the river of time. In today's show, Albemarle's County Executive highlights Albemarle's building boom. Developers shed some light on how regulatory hurdles can affect the cost of housing. And Albemarle's housing plan is going back to the Planning Commission, but supervisors weighed in first. Charlottesville Public Housing discusses ending a security contract, and a fifth candidate emerges in the race for two Democratic nominations for City Council. In today's Patreon-fueled shout-out, your local energy nonprofit, LEAP, offers free home weatherization to income and age-qualifying residents. If you're age 60 or older, or have an annual household income of less than $75,100, you may qualify for a free energy assessment and home energy improvements such as insulation and air sealing. Sign up today to lower your energy bills, increase comfort, and reduce energy waste at home. Before starting today, today is the deadline for candidates who want to be on the ballot as a party candidate in the Democratic primary on June 8th. Candidates for primaries must have all of their paperwork ready by 5 p.m., including 125 signatures. City resident and software engineer Josh Karp announced his bid on Twitter Tuesday evening. The other candidates in the race are school board member Juan Diego Wade, Charlottesville native and businessman Carl Brown, local campaign veteran Yaz Washington, and 2019 candidate and UVA project manager Brian Pinkston. Primaries will also be held in the three supervisor races in Albemarle. Liz Palmer is not running for a third term in the Samuel Miller district, leaving at least one open seat. County Registrar Jake Washburn confirmed in an email that Jim Andrews has filed as a Democrat in that race. Neither Rio District incumbent Ned Galloway or Jack Jewett incumbent Diantha McKeel have yet indicated if they will seek new terms. The next segment is from the Charlottesville Redevelopment and Housing Authorities meeting from Monday. First, do you or someone you know need assistance paying for where you live? The waiting list for federal vouchers issued by the CRHA will reopen on March 29th for a brief time, with the window closing on April 2nd. John Sales is the executive director of CRHA. Uh, the waitlist is electronic this year, and it will be available on portal.cvillerha.com. That is on our website, it is on our Facebook page, and it should be on the news probably the next couple days. The CRHA is authorized to issue up to 538 vouchers, which go to individuals to help make up the cost between what they can afford and the open market. Currently, 393 households receive the voucher from CRHA, and Sales said he is hoping to add between 40 and 50 new ones. The funding comes from the U.S. Department of Housing and Urban Development, but the city of Charlottesville pays $900,000 a year to cover the cost of additional rental assistance. Sales said in an email that 77 households are using that program. Since January, Century Force Security has held a contract to patrol CRHA properties. President Tim Sansone addressed the CRHA Board of Commissioners at their meeting at Matters from the Public, and said there has been an increase in illegal activities and that Century Force personnel have been coordinating with the Charlottesville Police Department. 
Um, I understand that there's been um, some dialogue or uh, conversations as far as the the scope of our services and the contract in general that we have with CRHA. I, I think everyone would would agree or know that the properties that we're you know here to patrol um, and provide services for. Um, are definitely in need of some type of security service or, or coverage, which is what we're currently providing. Sansone said service was reduced in February due to the cost, and he told the CRHA board that his company had put together a proposal for a lowered price. The topic came up during a public hearing on the budget for fiscal year 2022. The CRHA fiscal year begins on April 1st. Sales said revenue from tenants is expected to be down by 150000 despite leasing more units this year. He also said the U.S. Department of Housing and Urban Development is requiring CRHA to set aside half a million dollars in reserve in order to one day leave the troubled status that it has. Much of the discussion, though, dealt with the security issue. Sales said that the CRHA had signed a $240,000 contract under a line item called Total Protective Services, but that is now expected to not carry on into the next year. Sales became CRHA director last August. Solicitation was already out when I got here. We moved forward with it. Um, after going through numbers, looking at our what we're projected to lose in revenue, um, the operating fund not catching up for a, a year, because it's a year behind um, when they actually look at our um, our budget and uh, what we actually did when it comes to tenant revenue. Um, I We really can't afford this service. Sales said the bill from Century Force Security for January was $43,000. I don't know any housing authority that can afford that. Uh, that's about a half a million dollars a year. Uh, that would by far be the largest contract we have. Sales said there are other ways to address security issues, such as hiring someone to check IDs before people enter Crescent Halls, for instance. At the public comment period, Brandon Collins of the Public Housing Association of Residents said he supported the change. The current security company and the previous security company really weren't offering anything, um, any kind of improvement to resident safety. And that uh, housing authority has been very responsive to, to resident direction on this, this matter. Collins said community-based initiatives such as the recently formed Buck Squad and or Peace on the Streets would be better use of resources to address safety. Sansone spoke again during the public hearing for the budget. He said security officers have logged 147 incidents, and 23 of those have been for violent crime, drug-related, or property damage. He said he understood the budget issues. I would hope that we could all agree that security is definitely a, a need at these properties. In January, when we were at full staffing level, uh, we were patrolling concurrently with CPD. Sansone warned that without security, the number of violent incidents would continue as the weather gets warm. That's the same message that the head of the Buck Squad told council earlier this month. Sansone said that could leave the CRHA with liability issues if someone they hire to run the door at Crescent Halls is injured in an incident. However, the CRHA's attorney, David Oberg, later disputed that notion and said they would be covered by workers' compensation. Sansone offered a lower rate for Sentry Force's services, albeit with lower service. I just strongly would discourage the board from considering removing all security presence in a, as, as a whole, especially with the summer months coming up. 
Sales said that that new proposal from Century Force was for $180,000 for fiscal year 22, and Sales thought that the authority could only afford about $9,000 a month. Sansone continued his pitch. It's not going to be the exact same service level as having you know what we had done in January, but it would be able to still provide a deterrent and a presence because if people start seeing that there's no security at all at these properties, then it's going the word's going to get out and that you're going to have a, you're going to see a lot more activity happening at these properties, especially with the summer months coming up. There were murders at South First Street on November 5th and December 27th of last year, as well as numerous reports of shots fired. Mayor Nakaya Walker, who sits on the CRHA board, acknowledged the summer months could lead to an uptick in violence, and she wants to find a solution to prevent future issues. It is something that we need to figure out, but I think that we need to work with the um, families that live there with um, CRHA, with the safety committee. It isn't something that we can delay. Walker said council is considering proposals to fund both Peace in the Street and the Buck Squad. But there are also some things that they can't do, so we need to figure out um, that we wouldn't want them to do, just for safety reasons. The CRHA will vote on the budget at a meeting on March 30th. Kathleen Glenn Matthews, the operations director for CRHA, gave an update on redevelopment efforts. Groundbreaking for the first phase of South First Street's redevelopment was held on March 7th. And we are in the planning process since we recently closed on Crescent Halls to go ahead and get a similar event in place there. And I'm hoping to have some announcements soon once I talk to the Crescent Halls Resident Association about um, times that will work for them. You're listening to Charlottesville Community Engagement. This subscriber-supported public service announcement is from an anonymous supporter. Do you want to support your public library by picking up a mystery bag of books? The Friends of the Jefferson Madison Regional Library have resumed their pop-up book sale this Sunday at the Gordon Avenue Library. For $5, you can pick up a sealed, pre-selected bag, choosing from mystery, popular fiction, literary fiction, classic literature, biographies, sci-fi, or fantasy. The JMRL pop-up sale begins this Sunday from 10 a.m. to 2 p.m. at the Gordon Avenue Library. How much of a role does local policy play in determining the cost of housing? That was one theme of a panel discussion held on March 18, 2021, by the Central Virginia Regional Housing Partnership. Charlie Armstrong is the Vice President of Land Development for Southern Development, one of the area's most active property developers. There's a lot of factors that go into making something affordable, uh, many of which we just don't control locally. Every structure you see in America is reviewed at multiple levels of government to make sure that the edifice conforms to rules. Armstrong said too much land use regulation increases the cost of housing and that localities can play a role through their own policies. We, as a community, really do this to ourselves. Um, We intentionally, through our comprehensive plans and zoning ordinances, limit the supply of land for new homes. We intentionally, as a community, limit the density of new homes that is allowed on any one piece of land. 
Albemarle's comprehensive plan sets aside roughly 5% of the county's 726 square miles for residential development. Armstrong said the community's choice to let the rest of the county be rural has impacts on the cost of housing. Limited supply drives up the cost because those with more money can offer higher prices. For the land that is available, it can be time-consuming and expensive to navigate through the zoning and special use permit process that can unlock higher residential densities. Chris Henry of Stony Point Design Build said housing was more affordable in the past because developers did not have to comply with regulations to reduce stormwater runoff, as well as requirements to build sidewalks and other public infrastructure. Municipalities used to be uh, in the business of, even in, in some cases, building roads. They, uh, they would put in stormwater and things like that. A lot of that has been pushed off to the private sector for various reasons. A lot of them um, are reasonable, but it's ended up adding to the cost of homes. For more on this discussion, I've got an article in this week's Siva Weekly that goes into more detail. You can also watch the whole presentation on the Thomas Jefferson Planning District Commission's YouTube page. Now let's go back for the rest of the show to the March 17, 2021 meeting of the Albemarle Board of Supervisors. Things are being built in the county. Here's County Executive Jeffrey Richardson. 2020 was the, was the greatest volume of building permits in over nine years. Just 9.7 of the building permits were issued, uh, were issued in the rural area. Over 90% are, uh, of the building permits were issued in the development area. According to the year-end building report for 2020, about a quarter of the units were single-family detached, and the rest are a mixture of townhomes, multifamily, and other forms of housing. In all, 1,143 certificates of occupancy were issued in Albemarle in 2020, with a similar ratio between development and rural areas. Supervisor Ann Malik said in the mid-2000s that ratio was 50-50. She said there is a potential danger in overdevelopment of the growth areas. Because of all the work that's been done for 30 years, to have our development areas be places where people want to live and how important it is that we're so careful about not messing that up. You know, whether it's not addressing the, the shortcomings we have for infrastructure or making it so crowded that people don't want to be there. Supervisor Diantha McKeel said there are challenges in the development area that have to be addressed. And we have to keep focused on getting the infrastructure bill to handle all of these folks. Later in the evening, the Board of Supervisors had an update and public hearing on the county's housing plan, which has been under development since July of 2019. This plan builds off of a housing study conducted by the Thomas Jefferson Planning District Commission in March of that year. An updated draft of the housing Albemarle was made available in the supervisor's packet. Stacey Pethia is the county's housing coordinator. The report identified more than 10,000 renters and homeowners who are paying more than the recommended 30% of their income towards housing costs. So there's a need to address housing cost burdens in the county. The proposed policy includes 12 policy objectives and 39 corresponding strategies and action steps. These range from increasing the overall supply of housing to promoting mixed-income development in the designated growth areas. The plan also calls for the creation of an affordable housing trust fund. Pepia did not go into many details on March 17th, 
At the very beginning of her presentation, she said the item would be going back to the Planning Commission after the public hearing. Supervisors had the chance to ask questions before people spoke. Supervisor Liz Palmer drew attention to Objective 8, which calls for reductions in regulatory barriers to housing. One strategy would allow accessory external dwelling units in all of the county's residential zoning districts. Maybe I'm reading more into that than I should. Um, Does that mean that any place in the whole county can, somebody can put up a dwelling unit, an accessory dwelling unit? Yes, that, that is the intent behind that. Pethia said an ordinance would be developed first that would set the guidelines for such a program. Supervisor Diantha McKeel also had some concerns about the idea, especially in already established neighborhoods. To go back into older neighborhoods, retrofit for something they weren't built for, it works These accessory dwellings work perfectly in Belvedere. Belvedere was built for them. At the public hearing, many speakers represented the group Impact, which is holding their annual Nehemiah event on March 25th to ask supervisors to commit to affordable housing. One of the speakers was Vicki Bravo. Our interfaith group of 25 congregations representing 15,000 people. There are also 14 others of us here tonight. We congratulate you on your excellent proposed housing policy and we look forward to celebrating its approval. We are pleased that the policy includes the creation of an affordable housing trust fund, the best practice around the country for creating affordable housing. Following the public hearing, supervisors had the chance to make their comments. Supervisor Ann Malik said she was concerned about the way Objective 1 is phrased. She said it might open the door to changes in zoning that the community would not support. Increase the supply to meet the needs of all current and all future residents of Alamore County. That's what it says in the first objective. That is not possible. We need to take out the word all and understand that we are going to do our very best to increase the supply to meet the needs of residents. But I don't want this to be used as an excuse to throw everything under the bus because it's a completely unattainable objective. Malik said many older neighborhoods cannot support additional density because they weren't built for it. The streets are 10 feet wide. The right-of-way goes to the edge of the pavement. There is no place for sidewalks or bike lanes or the extra traffic that comes with doubling, possibly, the numbers of units on that street. Supervisor Donna Price said the county would have to come to some new conclusions if it wants to maintain the growth management policy that's been in place since 1980. If we want to maintain our policy of 5% development area and 95% rural area, that means we have to fill in substantial density into the 5% that we've got. So in order to do that, I believe we have to recognize that the historic suburban neighborhoods of model of detached single-family homes is insufficient to meet the current and future needs. Supervisor B. Lepisto-Kirtley said Albemarle is in a dilemma because existing residents of the designated growth area are resisting the construction of additional homes. And people don't want the density increase. They don't want the buildings to go higher. Um, So that means eventually, do we go out in the rural areas? We have to make a decision. It's going to be a tough decision. 
Lepisto curtly said she would prefer not to expand the development area, but instead build more multifamily units and townhomes. Supervisor Ned Galloway said he wanted more information about the details of how the trust fund would work, and more specifics about other aspects of the plan. He said he was confident he would get them as the plan works its way back through the planning commission. And we have an opportunity here to have some robust conversations around these specific things because it's going back to the planning commission. There's no word yet on when the housing Albemarle plan will go back to the planning commission and then the board of supervisors. Stay tuned. And that's it for this installment of Charlottesville Community Engagement for March 25th, 2021. I really do appreciate if you made it through to the end of this. Hopefully now you know a little bit more about things you didn't know about in the past, and hopefully that builds a better future for you with a little bit more understanding. I'm Sean Tubbs, your host, and if you have enjoyed this program, the most important thing you can do today is to send it on to somebody else so I can continue to grow the audience base and uh, to hopefully have some of those folks make some sort of a financial contribution so I can begin to hire people to help get this stuff out faster and more of it. In the coming days, there'll be a couple more of these and um, not quite sure on what schedule because there's a lot of meetings going on. And as soon as I finish this one, I'll get right to work on the next installment of Charlottesville Community Engagement. Thanks for listening and stay safe out there. <laughs>